we continue with the opinion of the court in Biden v. Nebraska, beginning with Part 3 of the opinion. Part 3. The Secretary asserts that the HEROES Act grants him the authority to cancel $430 billion of student loan principal. It does not. We hold today that the Act allows the Secretary to waive or modify existing statutory or regulatory provisions applicable to financial assistance programs under the Education Act, not to rewrite that statute from the ground up. Section A. The HEROES Act authorizes the Secretary to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Education Act, as the Secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. That power has limits. To begin with, statutory permissions to modify does not authorize basic and fundamental changes in the scheme designed by Congress. Instead, that term carries a connotation of increment or limitation and must be read to mean to change moderately or in minor fashion. That is how the word is ordinarily used. The legal definition is no different. The authority to modify statutes and regulations allows the Secretary to make modest adjustments and additions to existing provisions, not transform them. The Secretary's previous invocations of the HEROES Act illustrate this point. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, modifications issued under the Act implemented only minor changes, most of which were procedural. Examples include reducing the number of tax forms borrowers are required to file, extending time periods in which borrowers must take certain actions, and allowing oral rather than written authorizations. Here, the Secretary purported to modify the provisions of two statutory sections and three related regulations governing student loans. The affected statutory provisions granted the Secretary the power to discharge a borrower's liability or pay the remaining principal on a loan under certain narrowly prescribed circumstances. Those circumstances were limited to a borrower's death, disability, or bankruptcy, a school's false certification of a borrower or failure to refund loan proceeds as required by law and a borrower's inability to complete an educational program due to closure of the school. The corresponding regulatory provisions detailed rules and procedures for such discharges. They also defined the terms of the government's public service loan forgiveness program and provided for discharges when schools commit malfeasance. The Secretary's new modifications of these provisions were not moderate or minor. Instead, they created a novel and fundamentally different loan forgiveness program. The new program vests authority in the Department of Education to discharge up to $10,000 for every borrower with income below $125,000 and up to $20,000 for every such borrower 
who has received a Pell Grant. No prior limitation on loan forgiveness is left standing. Instead, every borrower within this specified income cap automatically qualifies for debt cancellation, no matter their circumstances. The Department of Education estimates that the program will cover 98.5% of all borrowers. From a few narrowly delineated situations specified by Congress, the Secretary has expanded forgiveness to nearly every borrower in the country. The Secretary's plan has modified the cited provisions only in the same sense that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility. It has abolished them and supplanted them with a new regime entirely. Congress opted to make debt forgiveness available only in a few particular exigent circumstances. The power to modify does not permit the Secretary to convert that approach into its opposite by creating a new program affecting 43 million Americans and $430 billion in federal debt. Labeling the Secretary's plan a mere modification does not lessen its effect, which is, in essence, to allow the Secretary unfettered discretion to cancel student loans. It is highly unlikely that Congress authorized such a sweeping loan cancellation program through such a subtle device as permission to modify. The Secretary responds that the Act authorizes him to waive legal provisions as well as modify them, and that this additional term grants broader authority than would modify alone. But the Secretary's invocation of the waiver power here does not remotely resemble how it has been used on prior occasions. Previously, waiver under the HEROES Act was straightforward. The Secretary identified a particular legal requirement and waived it, making compliance no longer necessary. For instance, on one occasion, the Secretary waived the requirement that a student provide a written request for a leave of absence. On another, he waived the regulatory provisions requiring schools and guarantee agencies to attempt collection of defaulted loans for the time period in which students were affected individuals. Here, the Secretary does not identify any provision that he is actually waiving, No specific provision of the Education Act establishes an obligation on the part of student borrowers to pay back the government. So as the government concedes, waiver as used in the HEROES Act cannot refer to waiving loan balances or waiving the obligation to repay on the part of a borrower. Because the Secretary cannot waive a particular provision or provisions to achieve the desired result, he is forced to take a more circuitous approach, one that avoids any need to show compliance with the statutory limitation on his authority. He simply waives the elements of the discharge and cancellation provisions that are inapplicable to this debt cancellation program that would limit eligibility to other contexts. Yet even that expansive conception of waiver cannot justify the Secretary's plan, which does far more than relax existing legal requirements. The plan specifies particular sums to be forgiven 
and income-based eligibility requirements. The addition of these new and substantially different provisions cannot be said to be a waiver of the old in any meaningful sense. Recognizing this, the Secretary acknowledges that waiver alone is not enough. After waiving whatever inapplicable law would bar his debt cancellation plan, he says, he then modified the provisions to bring them in line with this program. So in the end, the Secretary's plan relies on modifications all the way down. And, as we have explained, the word modify simply cannot bear that load. The Secretary and the dissent go on to argue that the power to waive or modify is greater than the sum of its parts. Because waiver allows the Secretary to eliminate legal obligations in their entirety, the argument runs, the combination of waive or modify allows him to reduce them to any extent short of waiver, even if the power to modify ordinarily does not stretch that far. But the Secretary's program cannot be justified by such sleight of hand. The Secretary has not truly waived or modified the provisions in the Education Act authorizing specific and limited forgiveness of student loans. Those provisions remain safely intact in the U.S. Code, where they continue to operate in full force. What the Secretary has actually done is draft a new section of the Education Act from scratch by waiving provisions root and branch and then filling the empty space with radically new text. Lastly, the Secretary points to a procedural provision in the HEROES Act. The Act directs the Secretary to publish a notice in the Federal Register, including the terms and conditions to be applied in lieu of such statutory and regulatory provisions as the Secretary has waived or modified. In the Secretary's view, that language authorizes both deleting and then adding back in, waiving and then putting his own requirements in, a sort of red penciling of the existing law. Section 1098BBB2 is, however, a wafer-thin read on which to rest such sweeping power. The provision is no more than it appears to be, a humdrum reporting requirement. Rather than implicitly granting the Secretary authority to draft new substantive statutory provisions at will, it simply imposes the obligation to report any waivers and modifications he has made. Section 109BBB2 suggests that waivers and modifications includes additions. The dissent accordingly reads the statute as authorizing any degree of change or any new addition, from modest to substantial, and nothing in the dissent's analysis suggests stopping at substantial. Because the secretary does not have to leave gaping holes when he waives provisions, the argument runs, it follows that any replacement terms the secretary uses to fill those holes must be lawful but the Secretary's ability to add new terms in lieu of the old is limited to his authority to modify existing law. As with any other modification issued under the Act, no new term or condition reported pursuant to Section 1098BBB2 
may distort the fundamental nature of the provision it alters. The Secretary's comprehensive debt cancellation plan cannot fairly be called a waiver. It not only nullifies existing provisions, but augments and expands them dramatically. It cannot be mere modification because it constitutes effectively the introduction of a whole new regime. And it cannot be some combination of the two because when the Secretary seeks to add to existing law, the fact that he has waived certain provisions does not give him a free pass to avoid the limits inherent in the power to modify. However broad the meaning of waive or modify, that language cannot authorize the kind of exhaustive rewriting of the statute that has taken place here. Section B. In a final bid to elide the statutory text, the Secretary appeals to Congressional purpose. The whole point of the HEROES Act, the government contends, is to ensure that in the face of a national emergency that is causing financial harm to borrowers, the Secretary can do something, and that something was left deliberately vague because Congress intended to grant substantial discretion to the Secretary to respond to unforeseen emergencies. So the unprecedented nature of the Secretary's debt cancellation plan only reflects the pandemic's unparalleled scope. The dissent agrees. Emergencies, after all, are emergencies, it reasons, and more serious measures must be expected in response to more serious problems. The dissent's interpretation of the HEROES Act would grant unlimited power to the Secretary, not only to modify or waive certain provisions, but to fill the holes that action creates with new terms no matter how drastic those terms might be, and to alter provisions to the extent he thinks appropriate, up to and including the most substantial kind of change imaginable. That is inconsistent with the statutory language and past practice under the statute. The question here is not whether something should be done. It is who has the authority to do it. Our recent decision in West Virginia v. EPA involved similar concerns over the exercise of administrative power. That case involved the EPA's claim that the Clean Air Act authorized it to impose a nationwide cap on carbon dioxide emissions. Given the history and the breadth of the authority that the agency had asserted and the economic and political significance of that assertion, we found that there was reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such authority. So too here, where the Secretary of Education claims the authority on his own to release 43 million borrowers from their obligations to repay $430 billion in student loans. The Secretary has never previously claimed powers of this magnitude under the HEROES Act. As we have already noted, past waivers and modifications issued under the Act have been extremely modest and narrow in scope. The Act has been used only once before to waive or modify a provision related to debt cancellation.
In 2003, the Secretary waived the requirement that borrowers seeking loan forgiveness under the Education Act's public service discharge provisions perform uninterrupted, otherwise qualifying service for a specified length of time or for consecutive periods of time, such as five consecutive years. That waiver simply eased the requirement that service be uninterrupted to qualify for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. In sum, no regulation premised on the HEROES Act has even begun to approach the size or scope of the Secretary's program. Under the government's reading of the HEROES Act, the Secretary would enjoy virtually unlimited power to rewrite the Education Act. This would affect a fundamental revision of the statute, changing it from one sort of scheme of regulation into an entirely different kind, one in which the secretary may unilaterally define every aspect of federal student financial aid, provided he determines that recipients have suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a national emergency. The economic and political significance of the Secretary's action is staggering by any measure. Practically every student borrower benefits, regardless of circumstances. A budget model issued by the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania estimates that the program will cost taxpayers between $469 billion and $519 billion, depending on the total number of borrowers ultimately covered. That is ten times the economic impact that we found significant in concluding that an eviction moratorium implemented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention triggered analysis under the Major Questions Doctrine. It amounts to nearly one-third of the government's $1.7 trillion in annual discretionary spending. There is no serious dispute that the Secretary claims the authority to exercise control over a significant portion of the American economy. The dissent is correct that this is a case about one branch of government arrogating to itself power belonging to another, but it is the executive seizing the power of the legislature. The Secretary's assertion of administrative authority has conveniently enabled him to enact a program that Congress has chosen not to enact itself. Congress is not unaware of the challenges facing student borrowers. More than 80 student loan forgiveness bills and other student loan legislation were considered by Congress during its 116th session alone and the discussion is not confined to the halls of Congress. Student loan cancellation raises questions that are personal and emotionally charged, hitting fundamental issues about the structure of the economy. The sharp debates generated by the Secretary's extraordinary program stand in stark contrast to the unanimity with which Congress passed the HEROES Act. The dissent asks us to imagine asking the enacting Congress, can the secretary use his powers to give borrowers more relief when an emergency has inflicted greater harm? The dissent can't believe the answer would be no. 
But imagine instead asking the enacting Congress a more pertinent question. Can the secretary use his powers to abolish $430 billion in student loans, completely canceling loan balances for 20 million borrowers as a pandemic winds down to its end? We can't believe the answer would be yes. Congress did not unanimously pass the HEROES Act with such power in mind. A decision of such magnitude and consequence on a matter of earnest and profound debate across the country must rest with Congress itself, or any agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. As then-Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi explained, People think that the President of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That has to be an act of Congress. Aside from reiterating its interpretation of the statute, the dissent offers little to rebut our conclusion that indicators from our previous major questions cases are present here. The dissent insists that student loans are in the secretary's wheelhouse, but in light of the sweeping and unprecedented impact of the secretary's loan forgiveness program, it would seem more accurate to describe the program as being in the wheelhouse of the House and Senate committees on appropriations. Rather than dispute the extent of that impact, the dissent chooses to mount a frontal assault on what it styles the court's made-up major questions doctrine. But its attempt to relitigate West Virginia v. Oregon 2006 is misplaced. As we explained in that case, while the major questions label may be relatively recent, it refers to an identifiable body of law that has developed over a series of significant cases spanning decades. At any rate, the issue now is not whether West Virginia is correct— The question is whether that case is distinguishable from this one, and it is not. The secretary, for his part, acknowledges that West Virginia v. Oregon is the law, but he objects that its principles apply only in cases concerning agency actions involving the power to regulate, not the provision of government benefits. In the government's view, there are fewer reasons to be concerned in cases involving benefits which do not impose profound burdens on individual rights or cause regulatory effects that might prompt a note of caution in other contexts involving exercises of emergency powers. This court has never drawn the line the secretary suggests, and for good reason— Among Congress's most important authorities is control of the purse. It would be odd to think that separation of powers concerns evaporate simply because the government is providing monetary benefits rather than imposing obligations. As we observed in West Virginia, experience shows that major questions cases have arisen from all corners of the administrative state and administrative action resulting in the conferral of benefits is no exception to that rule. In King v. Burwell, 2015, we declined to defer to the Internal Revenue Service's interpretation of a health care statute, explaining that the provision at issue affected billions of dollars of spending each year, 
and the price of health insurance for millions of people. Because the interpretation of the provision was a question of deep economic and political significance that is central to the statutory scheme, we said, we would not assume that Congress entrusted that task to an agency without a clear statement to that effect. That the statute at issue involved government benefits made no difference in King, and it makes no difference here. All this leads us to conclude that the basic and consequential trade-offs inherent in a mass debt cancellation program are ones that Congress would likely have intended for itself. In such circumstances, we have required the Secretary to point to clear congressional authorization to justify the challenged program. And, as we have already shown, the HEROES Act provides no authorization for the Secretary's plan even when examined using the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation, let alone clear congressional authorization for such a program. It has become a disturbing feature of some recent opinions to criticize the decisions with which they disagree as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary. Today we have concluded that an instrumentality created by Missouri, governed by Missouri, and answerable to Missouri is indeed part of Missouri, that the words waive or modify do not mean completely rewrite, and that our precedent, old and new, requires that Congress speak clearly before a department secretary can unilaterally alter large sections of the American economy. We have employed the traditional tools of judicial decision-making in doing so. Reasonable minds may disagree with our analysis. In fact, at least three do. We do not mistake this plainly heartfelt disagreement for disparagement. It is important that the public not be misled, either. Any such misperception would be harmful to this institution and our country. The judgment of the District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. The government's application to vacate the Eighth Circuit's injunction is denied as moot. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.